don't be afraid to take a chance, take a risk. I've, I've worked with a lot of people that want to get in the game that have an interest in this that are on the sidelines. I, I have clients that are arguably and admittedly um, less sophisticated, but they're doers. They're willing to jump in. Welcome to the Apartment Investing Journey, where we explore every facet of multifamily investing and development with top investors, brokers, and service providers who share their strategies, successes, and secrets to help you on your apartment investing journey. Hey guys, uh, welcome to the Apartment Investing Journey. I'm David Robinson. I'm here with my co-host, Mr. Dane Hill. Dane, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good, good. So I'm excited about our guest today. Um, he has a, a significant background in the commercial lending side of the business um, with a specialty in multifamily. And so I'm excited to introduce uh, Paul Winterode. Welcome to the show, Paul. Hey, great to be here. Excited to spend a few minutes with you guys. Yeah, we appreciate you coming on. I know you're busy and uh, thanks for sharing your time and and your expertise. Uh, a little bit about Paul. Uh, Paul is a loan officer at Bonneville Multifamily Capital, where he has originated over $100 million in multifamily mortgages. He's also an active multifamily investor himself, both actively as a syndication sponsor and passive investor currently involved in over 200 doors. Paul has been, featured, uh, has been a featured guest on several other podcasts, including the Real Estate Guys radio show. Love that show. He's also been published in the Rental Housing Journal and authored over 50 blog posts on the Bonneville Multifamily Capital website. And from what I also understand, you're just an okay golfer as well. Is that correct? I used to be good, but now I'm okay now. (laughs) Well, Paul, um, if you don't mind, maybe just take uh, a minute and tell us a little bit more about yourself just uh, so that we can get to know you and your story a little bit better. Yeah, uh, born and raised in Salt Lake City, Utah, always had a, an interest in, in real estate. Uh, but as, as you alluded to, uh, golf was a big part of my life uh, in high school and college. I played collegiately, uh, which, was, which was a lot of fun. I was a, a mediocre college golfer on a mediocre team, but uh, <laughs> I it, doubt was that. Fun to, it was fun to play at the, the division level, division one level and, and compete there. And it's, it's stayed a passion uh, of mine as well. I, I, I'm not real competitive in the tournament scene, but I, I do have a life goal that I'm working on of playing 500 different golf courses. So, And where are you at? I'm at 263 right Woo! now. So, uh, who's counting? So, but uh, <laughs> I always had an interest in real estate, uh, dabbled, I would say, in, in the residential space for, for a few years amongst some other things. And uh, didn't really stick or resonate with me, but as I learned and progressed and started investing myself and in building my portfolio, really had a strong interest in, in the commercial space, specifically multifamily, and uh, you know, feel fortunate to be where I am. Uh, certainly, uh, I have a lot of opportunities, a front row seat uh, to see a lot of deals, and and as an investor, you know, I figured. Uh, underwriting deals and figuring out what works on the debt side is a great way to, to understand what sort of deals are good to, to invest in myself. And, and so uh, active in, in both sides of, of the business, but 
the, the day job as far as originating loans for, for clients is, is very much a priority in the, the bulk of my, my time. Tell us, uh, how did you get into the lending business? How did you get into the commercial lending business? <laughs> I chuckle a, a lot of <laughs> a lot of selling and begging and praying. I guess would be the, the answer. Uh, had a connection, a friend that uh, is one of our main underwriters here at, at Bonneville, and uh, had an interest. And, and really, it was it was flat persistence. Uh, the the interviewing process was was over six months and just kind of stayed stayed after it. I identified, hey, this is what I want to do, and and. Uh, uh, just basically stayed stayed at it until they they gave me a chance and until they finally uh, it's gave worked, in. It's worked out pretty well so cool. far. So, well, that's great. Well, if it's okay with you, let's dive right in. And if you can help us to understand the differences between commercial multifamily lending and the residential multifamily lending, like your your duplex, triplex, fourplex. Help us understand the differences between the two. Sure. That just like you said, the line for residential is four units and below. So once you have five units, that's when it triggers a commercial loan. So five units and above uh, in a, in apartments is going to be a, a commercial loan. Now that that isn't to say you couldn't do a commercial loan on a duplex or or triplex if you wanted to, but the the residential lending parameters I, I think for those types of deals are more favorable and it makes more sense. To do that on your residential, obviously you're looking at a standard 30-year term and amortization. So when you step into the commercial space, that does start changing a little bit. Um, the natural progression for investors is to to first secure debt from banks, local banks and credit unions, someone they may have an existing relationship with. And typical bank terms on a stabilized multifamily property are, are going to be a 25-year amortization instead of a 30. Uh, it's not to say there aren't exceptions, but that's by, by and large the standard in the market. And then uh, typically looking at a five-year fixed term. So there will be either a balloon payment or more commonly a rate reset at that five-year mark. So you're locking in your interest rate for five years. And then at the five-year mark, they're going to look at the, the market and say, well, it may be better, it may be worse, and, and it adjusts. And so uh, the the term and the am difference is in, in residential it's essentially one and the same so you don't really differentiate but in the commercial space that's that's one of the first things you want to pay attention to as far as uh, constraints of the loan amount the there's really two common constraints one that everyone fixates on and then one in the marketplace that really dictates the loan amount so it's it's good to be aware of both. The, the obvious one is loan-to-value. Again, in that bank space, the common loan-to-value is a 75% loan-to-value or purchase price if you are acquiring a property. Now, the, the second constraint, and it's always the lower of the two, is a debt coverage ratio. And your debt coverage ratio, the standard in, in banking is 1.25. And you simply calculate that by taking your net operating income and dividing it by your annual principal and interest payments. And so the bank wants to say, hey, we want you to pay us 100%. We want to make sure that you're making 125% of what, of what uh, we require to get paid back. And that, I mean, we're in business to make money. That's, that's essentially your profit. So that's the common constraint. And with, the, with where we are in the marketplace and values 
being high and cap rates lower. That's the common constraint. I would say nine out of 10 deals I'm, I'm looking at are constrained by debt coverage. And that may, it doesn't mean the loan can't be done. It just may mean that levers back to maybe 70 or 65% to do sure. a deal. So you need more doubt. Walk us through, if you can, the commercial multifamily lending process. Let's say that we have an investor and they've identified their very first commercial apartment building that they want to purchase. Uh, Maybe they've had some experience in the residential multifamily, but this is their first commercial multifamily apartment building that they're looking to to acquire. Walk us through the process uh, on the commercial lending side. Several things I want to I want to key in on, and 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 just to frame it, I, I, debt is so ubiquitous, right? There's so much debt out there in the in the marketplace, and we're so used to debt on real estate. People will come come to me, and and even experienced investors that hey, I just deserve debt, I just deserve a loan, or I should have it just because everyone else gets it. Well, there there is a process, like you said, and there is there is underwriting, both on a personal or sponsor basis, and then also on the on the property. Every lender has some differences, but this is, if you follow these standards and metrics, you're, you're going to, to qualify for the vast majority of loans. Uh, the first, you want to have a credit score that's at least 650, preferably 680 and above. The nice thing about commercial loans is they don't show up on your personal credit report. They actually have, the borrower has to be a single asset entity, which is typically an LLC. So you're, it's not, in your personal name, it's in the name of a business. Whereas in residential, again, a distinction, it's in your name. You can't even borrow using an LLC. You have to borrow under your name and put it in an LLC in residential. Commercial, it's the opposite. You have to borrow in, in an entity. So uh, credit score and then net worth. A good metric is net worth equal to the loan amount. So if you want a million-dollar loan, they want to see a million-dollar net worth. Uh, that can be combined. That can be daunting for people starting out. And so that's why it's very common that we see partners. Uh, there may be a boots on the street and then a, a more passive money guy that they're both signing on the loan to, to hit that parameter. And then the liquidity, that's cash on hand after your down payment. It varies between 5 and 10%. I like to tell people a great metric as a real estate, a real estate investor is to have 10% of your net worth in cash. I think that's conservative, but everyone wants to deploy their money and get a return, but you do need some of that money on the sideline to, to qualify for loans. So I've got credit score minimum of 650, your net worth ratio of one to one for the required loan amount and cash on hand. Did you say five to 10%? Correct. Okay. Correct. Great. Is there anything else as far as the, you know, basic underwriting criteria that, that, uh, that a buyer needs to know right out of the gates before they even think about coming to you to, to get a loan? Experience always helps. That, that's a whole side conversation, but it's easier to get loans if you've done it before. But everyone has to start somewhere. So whether you're partnering or that sort of thing and, and different uh, loans require different experience, but that's the only other thing as far as a, as a credit standpoint. Now, the property, once you've checked that box, the property has to qualify as well. So what we, we're looking for right out of the gates, it's pretty simple, a current rent roll and a, and a current trailing 12 
operating statement or a profit and loss statement showing all, all collections, rents, and, and expenses. It always helps to have pictures of the property. Obviously, we need an address and some idea around your strategy, what you're going to do. Is this a buy and hold? Are you hanging on to this for 10 years? Are you going in? Are you adding value? Are you going to be rehabbing? Are you you know, in it for two years? There's a lot of different loan structures. So understanding that strategy or hold period is really helpful to structure the loan and get you to the right uh, program uh, to, to suit your needs. And then put together your pro forma of how this is going to how this is going to operate for you, where you think rents will be, where you think expenses will be. There's, it's impossible not to learn a lot about the property by underwriting and putting together, building a pro forma. And that, that can help you make decisions because uh, ultimately everyone wants everything, right? But there's different levers when it comes to the loan, like longer terms, maybe a higher rate or a, a softer prepayment schedule may increase your rate a little bit. Everyone wants the most loan amount, the lowest rate, the, the least painful prepayment penalty, but there's, there's levers as far as what you can get. And so if you have that pro forma built, you can plug in that number and be like, yeah, a 16% IRR is great. I'm in, you know, this works. A couple other things that the underwriters always key in on, on when we're, vetting for viability of the loan. One is certainly occupancy. So how many bodies are in there? At least 90% is what we really need in order to do your, your mainstream permanent loans. Now, again, that doesn't always fit in every box. And that's why there's bridge loans or construction loans to, to transition. But that but your long-term debt programs, you're going to need to be about 90% economic occupancy. Correct. Great. Correct. And you underwrite to the lower of again. If 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 uh, if you are at ninety two percent, then that's what we'll underwrite to. Gotcha. Spreading the load. Okay, this is great. So, um, any other uh, key underwriting criteria that we should be aware of? Well, there there's a handful, but I think by and large that that's the core things that you need to pay attention to. There's there's, of course, an appraisal. Your property is going to be subject to an appraisal in, in our market and landscape. That's rare. That, that's problematic. If we're talking 2009 or 10, it, it may be a different story. But right now, uh, properties are appraising, so that's not a problem. There's, there's going to be a physical inspection. Just make sure that it isn't... Um, you know, scorched earth <laughs> sort sure. of property. It's viable. It's safe for tenants. And then uh, uh, the legal side can be uh, definitely more complex than than residential. There's not a whole lot of legal involved in residential deals, but lenders will have their legal teams review. And then as you're getting into the syndication space, uh, that legal side from a borrower standpoint can get complicated. That has to be reviewed by the lender and, and you're going to spend some money with lawyers, but it's well worth it to make sure you're, you're complying and the SEC doesn't hunt you down and throw you in jail or something like that. So, right. Um, but that's, uh, that's more down the road. That's, that's not, those are boxes that need to be checked more so than what you need to really plan and pre- prepare for on the front end. 
That's excellent. Thank you for walking us through that. That's uh, very helpful. If you could describe for me the profile of your typical or most common borrower. It's a tough, it's a tough question to say most common. I'd say there's maybe two or three buckets of of individuals that I I typically work with. Uh, Easiest perhaps to wrap your head around is, is what I call the lone wolf. They've typically been in real estate or they've been successful in, in business and they need a place to park their money. They don't really like partners or want to work with partners. They do their their own thing. They're putting up their own capital as the down payments and and, and running their show, content to, to grow at a slower pace. They're in it for the cash flow type type thing. That's that's the loan. The second bucket of investors that I work with are the syndicators. Again, they're they're out, they're beating the streets, they're sourcing the deal, coming up with the business plan, putting together the investors and then and then doing the deal. Um, uh, if you're starting out, it's a great way to do it. The the key there is having having someone that can qualify for the loan. You can syndicate a deal with very little of your own net worth or liquidity, but you need someone that's going to sign on the loan with you. And then the third bucket of of investors that we work with, I I would say are really in that development uh, realm. So it's the new construction. They're, they're finding land. They're, you know, working through the whole entitlement and, permitting process and going vertical. Great. So those are your most typical three buckets, uh, the type of borrowers that come to you yeah. for, for their lending. Uh, Dane, I, I want to give you a chance to jump in here. I know you have a few questions for you. What, uh, what questions do you have for Paul? Well, the first one I wanted to ask, and this kind of goes back to um, what we were talking about a little bit earlier, but on someone who's working in kind of the value add space where they're going for these distressed properties or properties that haven't been managed well, that probably have lower occupancy and have some stuff that really needs to be done to them to get them up to a livable standard. Like what are some hurdles and what are some loan types that those um, kinds of people can pursue to like be able to close on these buildings? Value add. No one's interested in value add these days, (laughs) right? That's the hot topic, right? (laughs) Everyone loves value add. Of course. In fact, I got an email yesterday uh, from uh, a contact of mine said, Hey, if you ever see any value add deals, uh, let me know. I'm like, yeah, I, I wish I had <laughs> those to dish out, <laughs> but um, they are out there. Uh, certainly it's a very, um, you know, there's a lot of interest in that space. That's the majority of what syndicators are looking for. That's how they, that's how that works. And so the, the absolute best way to do it from a, a return maximization standpoint is really a two-step process. Now it does introduce some risk and it's not for everyone per se, but to, to minimize your cash into the deal, um, you really want to do a construction or a bridge loan. The, the cheapest money is going to be working with the local bank or credit union and getting a construction loan. Sometimes for beginners, that, that, that doesn't make sense. It's already built. I don't need a construction loan. Well, you are putting a lot of money and rehab into it. And so getting a construction loan to uh, acquire the property and then uh, include some of the repairs makes a whole lot of sense. Let me let me take a step deeper and explain why. Uh, on a permanent loan, we have to underwrite to what the property is, how it's performing, what what's being collected. And that's inevitably going to constrain our loan amount because we're going to have that debt coverage constraint. So we're looking at 
55, 60% loan to value. And everyone's like, I got to do that. I got to put 40% down and then I got to have my whole budget. Well, it doesn't work. On a construction loan, <laughs> typical norms, and again, in the, the Utah market, different markets may vary a little bit, but it's 75% loan to cost. So you can take your purchase price plus your rehab budget. So let's say you're buying it for $4 million, You're going to put a million into it. Your total cost is $5 million. So then you do a 25% loan to value on that rather than, you know, so you're bringing in what a million to five uh, rather than maybe two or three million. So uh, you got to get after it at that point. Your construction loan typically is going to be a year, maybe 18 months. And so you got to get after it, rehab it, get it released, stabilized, and then come in with a, a permanent takeout loan where uh, the, a common constraint is about 90% of cost on your permanent takeout loan. But we, we have done deals where we've got up to that 100%. Um, again, there's debt coverage constraints in today's markets uh, for, uh, for value. Uh, the fantasy is, hey, I'm going to get all my money out. That's, uh, that's rare. That's more the exception than the norm. Uh, we certainly like to see about 10%. We like to see some skin in the game on that takeout. But again, when you're, you're looking at 10% of your costs in the deal, that's, that's it's pretty good leverage. And that's really the best way to maximize returns. Now, there is some, there's an added element of risk because um, the construction loan can be recourse and you don't know exactly what your perm will look like, but, but that's, that's a go-to strategy that I'll work with on my client with on my clients on value add. All right, Dane, any other questions you have for Paul? Um, I guess the last one I had was if you are um, looking at working with a commercial mortgage broker, what are some things that kind of set a really good um, lender apart versus kind of a mediocre one? I guess like some good things to look for when you're looking to kind of establish a relationship with a lender. Uh, certainly you want someone that has a lot of, a lot of resources that, that has experience, but um, you know, I've, what's coming to mind is working with someone that's willing to take some time and, and educate you and, and work with you and help you through the process uh, especially starting out, that's that's going to be important. Uh, all I have in, in this business is my time. Like I'm not making money if I'm not doing deals. I've got to put food on the table. So I have an incentive to get that loan closed. But that's a, that's a huge advantage of working with the mortgage broker is because you have someone that knows the lender, uh, knows them intimately and has some pull and has some reason to take business back to them. Well, if you're just walking in off the street, they can turn you down and no big deal. If they turn down a client that I bring to them, they might rub me the wrong way and I might not take any more deals to them. So not only do they want to maintain the relationship with me, but I can also be an advocate and fight for the deal as well. Well, look, Paul, you've been gracious with your time and uh, we need to start winding down here, but just a couple rapid fire questions for you. Okay. Your reaction. There you, go. you ready? Yeah. All right, what's the biggest mistake, and this could be in your own personal investing or on the lending side, what's the biggest mistake you've made during your apartment investing journey? Uh, Waiting to get in the game. Mm. Should have started way sooner. What's the best win you've had on your apartment investing journey so far? 
the biggest win thus far has been a, a reposition. It, it was a, a big value add play. Uh, it was in uh, the avenues of Salt Lake City, but uh, we had investors in the deal. Investors saw a, a two and a two point two x return in just under uh, twenty months. I saw a return beyond that. Uh, it was it was a huge win. A lot of work, a lot of effort, a uh, lot of hurdles, but financially very very rewarding. We- we might have to have you on another time to talk about that one. <laughs> we could fill up a half hour, no problem. I bet. And lastly, uh, what's the best advice you have for someone who's just starting their apartment investing journey? Don't be afraid to take a chance. Take a risk. I've, I've worked with a lot of people that want to get in the game, that have an interest in this, that are on the sidelines. I, I have clients that are arguably and admittedly uh, less sophisticated, but they're doers. They're willing to jump in. Uh, you, you learn so much by doing. There's, if you did a deal and you lost thirty thousand, that's you're going to learn so much more than spending thirty thousand on an infomercial or some guru. Not that there aren't great value in some of the uh, gurus out there, but but getting in the game will uh, you'll you'll learn so much by actually doing it. Don't worry about making any money on your first deal. Look at it as education. Just get in the game. Awesome. Well, Paul, you've been uh, very gracious. We appreciate your knowledge, your expertise, and you taking the time to share with us today. How can the listeners get in contact with you in the, for, in the future? <clears throat> Probably easiest is to, to send me an email. Uh, my email address is paul at bmfcap.com. Paul at bmf cap.com. Uh, I, I'm on there quite a bit. I can add you to my newsletter from there. If you have any questions, reach out. We can set up a few minutes to chat. Great. And we'll make sure that's in the show notes as well. Well, Paul, thanks for your time. Hope you have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. It's been great. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you liked this episode, please take a quick second and hit that subscribe button. Uh, Even better, leave a quick review. This helps our show get found by others and helps us attract great guests as well. So thank you so much for joining me and we'll see you next week for another episode.